Hello and welcome to the ACS Nano podcast for April 2011. This is Heather Tierney, Managing Editor for ACS Nano. We have a very exciting show planned for you today. First, I'll talk to Jason Burdick and Colin Rebar about drug delivery using polymer nanorod complexes. Then I'll speak with Tobias Hanrath and his co-workers about nanocrystal superlattices. And finally, I'll speak to Sherry Kagan and David Kim about nanowire field effect transistors. Check out the recent articles from these authors and the entire April issue by visiting www.acsnano.org. Materials that undergo conformational changes upon external stimulus are currently being studied for their potential applications in drug delivery. A recent ACS Nano paper from Professor Jason Burdick and his group at the University of Pennsylvania describes triggering small molecule release with near-infrared light in polymer nanorod complexes. Today, Jason Burdick and Colin Rebar, a student in Jason's lab and the first author on this paper, join us to tell us about their work. Hello, Jason and Colin. Hello. Can you start by telling our listeners about the polymer nanorod complexes you used and how release from these materials can be triggered with light? Yes, biomaterials can undergo a lot of different changes based on external stimuli. And specifically, we're trying to harness the changes in materials based on temperature. And there's different ways in which biomaterials, and especially polymers, can undergo transitions that are temperature-induced, such as dissociation of protein-based polymers or changes where polymers undergo a critical solution temperature and will shrink in size or change based on hydrophobicity. And then what we've harnessed is a change in the glass transition temperature of polymers based on temperature. So below this specific temperature, polymers are in a glassy regime. And what this means is that the polymer chains exhibit very limited mobility. And above it, the polymer chains are in a rubbery regime and they exhibit a higher mobility. So in this work, we embedded gold nanorods that are sensitive to a specific wavelength of light, and specifically a near-infrared light, and they'll heat in response to that. So that became the trigger to transition from a glassy to a rubbery polymer. And in this kind of design, small molecules are embedded throughout this composite system. And when it goes from this temperature transition and the mobility changes within the polymer, it exhibits changes in the ability of a molecule to diffuse out of the network. So now we have enhanced mobility then in the rubbery regime after heating of the polymer with light. And why did you use, in particular, near-infrared light? So near-infrared light had been shown to uh, penetrate tissue up to several centimeters. And additionally, we found that the body's water and hemoglobin content was less affected by this wavelength. So it was dual purpose for penetrating tissue and limiting the destruction to healthy tissue in its way. Your in vitro studies showed very promising cell viabilities and reduction in cell activities. Does this give you hope for using these or similar constructs in vivo? Definitely. We always start with the in vitro work to show that there is some activity to the molecule that's being released. So whether we're trying to grow new tissues and and we're trying to see if a protein is active, or in this case, whether or not the released molecules can actually still do what they're intended to do, which is to destroy or reduce cell viability, in this case for a tumor cell line, we first look at them in vitro. But these results are quite promising in that we did still see activity of the release molecule. And so the next step would be to move to actual models of tumor formation and see if this trigger delivery can actually then suppress growth of a tumor in vivo. And are these going to be the next steps for your lab in this line of research? 
Definitely. So in this paper, we looked at two different formulations of these composites. One was an implantable disc where you could imagine that you could resect or remove a tumor and then implant this disc and then use this triggered release profile then to occasionally go in and then release amounts of this drug so that you can prevent reoccurrence of that tumor. Or alternatively, we've looked at particulate formulations where you could inject these directly into the site of the tumor, and you have this combined effect of both the drug being delivered as well as the temperature increase that can lead to destruction of the tumor. So it's really targeting the tumor with these two different modalities of both release and temperature. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about your work. Oh, thank you very much. Ordered nanocrystal assemblies, or superlattices, are a set of materials in which nanocrystals serve as building blocks to construct more complex structures. While these materials show great promise in applications such as solar cells, transistors, or medical diagnostics, a gap still remains in the understanding of the self-assembly of these structures. In a recent ACS Nano paper, Professor Tobias Hanrath and his co-workers observed, in real time, reversible symmetry transitions between different superlattice structures. Professor Hanrath and some of his co-workers join us today to tell us about their work. Hi, Tobias. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having us. Can you start by telling our listeners a little about what nanocrystal superlattices are and why it is so important to understand their self-assembly? Well, it is a very fascinating kind of system to study because the nanocrystals, as the name implies, are these tiny incy particles that are crystalline, that are already crystals. And now we can make a crystal of crystals if we put them together in a super lattice. And in fact, what we show in our paper, it's not only that, but in certain symmetries, these crystals are all very much oriented on the lattice sides. So I have a joke and I call this my square atoms. Because if you think about throwing some cubes together, okay, they are not at random when you put them together, they orient. And ours were actually not so anisotropic as a cube would be, but still we achieved this orientational ordering, and that, I think, is really cool. In your recent studies, how did you use solvent vapor exposure to mediate these superlattice transitions? Well, one of the interesting things about soft matter systems is or particularly nanocrystals, that we have this organic layer around the inorganic cores, and the organic layer makes these nanocrystals soluble in the first place. Now, when we have our superlattices, there still is some tendency to take up solvent vapor. Now, this is an interesting thing because now you can do something that, again, you cannot do with inorganic crystals, you can feed the nanocrystal superlattices solvent vapor, and they will expand, they will swell. And as we learned in our paper, they actually do even much more interesting things because sometimes they change their symmetry and sometimes they change their orientational properties. At the synchrotron, we have an interesting setup where we can look at the nanocrystal assemblies while exposing them to different vapor conditions. And during that exposure, we can look at the structure using small-angle X-ray scattering. So in this solvent chamber, we introduce a controlled amount of vapor, and we can control it from being either in a pure argon environment to completely saturated in any given vapor, and then look at changes in the structure of the superlattice in response to those vapors. The nice part is that you can do all of this in real time, so you can look at both the thermodynamics of the response as well as the 
kinetic aspects of how quickly the film will respond to the vapor conditions. So it's a really fruitful experimental setup for studies of these assemblies. And this setup is using in-situ grazing incidence small-angle X-ray scattering? Right. So this is at the synchrotron here at Cornell, and we can do both small-angle X-ray scattering, and from the small angles you can get information about the ordering of the particles in the film, and at the same time do wide-angle X-ray scattering. And from the combination of the two, you can get some information. So from small angle, you get information about the translation order of the particles within the assembly, and from the wide angle, you can look at the orientation of each particle in its lattice site. So the combination of the two is really powerful. And the super lattice transitions that you saw were between body-centered cubic and body-centered tetragonal to face-centered cubic. And can you tell us a little bit about these transitions you observed? So this was quite surprising to see this at first. You would expect that particles that are to first approximation, spherical, they should always assemble into a face-centered cubic structure. So we were quite surprised at first when we saw that this wasn't the case, that there was this coherent distortion of the superlattice. And in figure one of the paper, we actually have a schematic that shows how the face-centered cubic superlattice that you should always expect for spherical particles is related to a similar superlattice symmetry, the body-centered cubic superlattice. So in essence, if you take a face-centered cubic superlattice and distort it along one direction, at some point you will actually transform it into a body-centered cubic superlattice. And this transformation is well known from material science. So in atomic crystals, that would be considered a transformation along the Bain path. And this is the first time that this has been seen in these artificial solids and nanocrystal assemblies. And what do you see as some of the most promising applications for nanocrystal superlattices? So what we're working on right now and, and other groups working on these nanocrystals is, in essence, to exploit them for, in the case of the lead salts that are studied in this paper, solar cell applications, they also turn out to be interesting for thermoelectric applications. Fundamentally, it's quite interesting to do the structure property relationships where we can correlate a given superlattice symmetry to the emerging electric and optical properties of the assembly. Great. These are really exciting results, so thanks again for joining us today and sharing these. Yeah, thank you. Colloidal semiconductor materials are currently being studied due to their unique optical and electronic properties, which make them ideal for applications such as field-effect transistors, thermoelectrics, or photovoltaics. In a recent study by Sherry Kagan and her group, lead selenide field-effect transistors were created with reversible device characteristics. Today, Sherry Kagan and our student David Kim join us to discuss their work. Hi, Sherry and David. Thanks for joining us today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So what makes lead selenide particularly appealing for creating your field effect transistors? Well, lead selenide is a pretty unique material. It's a small band gap semiconductor. And of semiconductors, it's a less traditional and less well-known semiconductor It also has high mobility, and it's unique in that it has both a large Bohr exciton radius and large electron and hole Bohr radii, and so it's uh, very interesting to study in small nanoscale materials. It's also interesting in that it has very similar electron and hole mobilities and effective masses. And it's also interesting in a number of emerging devices, as you mentioned, in electronics and in thermoelectrics, 
in photovoltaics and for applications in optoelectronics, such as photodetectors. Can you briefly describe your method for fabricating your devices and how you reversibly created both ambipolar and unipolar n-type and p-type structures? Well, one of the interesting things about this material was that initially when we first studied it, we only saw p-type behavior, and we realized that these lead-cell-9 materials were really sensitive to oxygen. And so we had to make sure that whenever we synthesized, purified, and characterized and incorporated these nanowires into devices, we had to make sure that we kept everything air-free and to prevent any unintentional oxidation or doping during the entire process. And so we integrated these materials all inside a glove box, inert atmosphere, and when we aligned these nanowires with electric field alignment between cold electrodes, we found that initially these as-aligned devices were actually P-type. And then when we exposed the surface of these nanowires to hydrazine, chemical, N2H4, we found that we can get it to be N-type. And in both cases, it was actually not purely unipolar N or P-type. It was actually ambipolar N and P-type because of the small band gap. So we were able to get in a P-type material, we actually also got a small amount of electron current. While in the N-type material, we got very high electron currents, but we also got a significant amount of hole current as well. And so we were able to reversibly go back and forth. And additionally, we found that these materials were very sensitive to oxygen. And so in order to investigate this, what we did was we exposed these devices to a controlled UV ozone and we found that we completely suppressed any electron behavior, and we did not see any ambipolar behavior if it was exposed to any oxygen, which really highlights how important it was that our synthetic and characterization methods were all done air-free. What remaining challenges do you see for using these and similar devices in, say, integrated circuits? So in using these materials, there are still interesting challenges to explore in controlling their incorporation. As David mentioned, the way that we used these materials and incorporated them in devices was to use electric field alignment. And so there are still opportunities to explore how to integrate these nanowires in large scales into integrated devices. That's one. There's still a lot to understand in understanding opportunities to use and control the surface chemistry to understand the range of chemical compounds and the influence that surface chemistry has and the exposure of that surface on the entire device. I mean, one of the unique characteristics and contributions of this paper was in showing and separating the role of the device and actual the wires themselves in influencing the device characteristics. And so understanding how we use and dope nanoscale materials to control electrons and holes is still an interesting opportunity to be able to widen the range of different compounds that can be used in building electronic devices in nanoscale materials. And what's going to be the next step in your group? So in our group, one of the things that we're exploring is to understand more about the interfaces that are critically important in devices. So there are lots of devices that exist, and because the surface is so sensitive in nanoscale materials, and this is a very general problem, to nanoscale materials beyond just lead selenide, we're understanding the interfaces is something that's important, and we're very interested in understanding how the influence of the interfaces is important in the physics of the devices. And so that continues to be a direction of exploration on a fundamental scale. 
And they were also interested in how we explore the physics of these devices. They're important in different applications, as you mentioned at the very introduction in their behavior in various devices for electronics and in thermoelectrics and in photovoltaics. Great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing some of these studies in the future, and thanks again for joining us today. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the ACS Nano podcast for April 2011, and thanks to Jason Burdick, Colin Hrebar, Tobias Hanrath and his co-workers, Sherry Kagan, and David Kim for joining us today. Tune in next month for more highlights from ACS Nano, and be sure to visit us online at www.acsnano.org.